Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series entitled Imitate, a study on the book of 1 Thessalonians. For more information about CBC or how to get plugged in, visit us on the website, cbcsavannah.com. Father, we, again, move now from worship through singing, through worship, through your word. We come and, Lord, I don't know what's going on in people's hearts. I don't know where they've been. I don't know what they're thinking about. But just for a few moments, let, our, let us turn our hearts to be open to what you may have to say to us. Um, we think this morning as we, for this month, are praying for uh, the Muslim world, uh, not only in Savannah, but beyond. And we think it seems unfathomable that people would, that are so opposed to the gospel that they would turn to it. But we remember the very letter we read this morning was written by a man who hated you initially, who was killing Christians, but yet he becomes the great apostle Paul. And so we know that you, by your spirit, do great things. And so I pray you would, that you would send many into the, the, the Middle East and beyond that, that are hard and opposed to the gospel, but yet you, they would take root, that the churches would be planted that uh, people would come to know you uh, through that. And even in Savannah, as we have around us those who uh, maybe are disillusioned with Christianity, maybe who have misconceptions, maybe some this morning here uh, don't know what it means to be a follower of Christ, that you would give us the opportunity as a church to model Jesus. Um, Lord, I pray for your help. I ask your spirit to move. I have nothing in me that can bring life chains. I have no power in me. And I acknowledge it before all these people because I want to proclaim the gospel. I want to proclaim the word and the power of the Holy Spirit so that there's full conviction. And if it's just me up here, there's none of that. But if it's you working through uh, just brokenness and, and, and one of your servants, that there is power and, and the name of Jesus will be exalted. And so that's what my prayer is. Uh, so that your church is built, equipped, uh, and that we are more like our Lord Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. <clears throat> and if you have a Bible, turn to First Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, um, grab one in front of you. And if you don't own one, take that one home with you. We, it's a gift to you. We want you to have a copy. Um, I know some of you kind of come in and you rely on the slides and that's, we, we want to provide for that. But it's, it's just much better for you. You'll be able to follow along better if you're holding the Bible in your lap. And so if we can help you buy one, we have a bunch in the lost and found that people have left. You can take one of theirs, okay? As long as it doesn't have a name in it, it's free game, right? And so some of your Bibles are in the back closet. Others, we have no clue because there's no name in it. So you can take that one. And I, I won't tell anybody. Stealing Bibles is not technically crime because um, it's Bible. So um, it's kind of a sad day. Olympics are coming to an end. You know, right now, America is probably winning a basketball game. I don't know what time they play, but we should win. If we don't, we ought to quit the NBA. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been an exciting couple weeks for us. Finally, now that the Olympics are over, we'll actually get to bed at a decent hour. But as we're watching these things, it's really, there's, there's two, I've broken all the sports of the Olympics into two major categories. There's those sports that are very clear who wins and who loses, right? First guy across the line wins. It's easy. Most points, he wins, right? Uh, hits the most bullseyes, touches the wall first, jumps the highest, jumps the furthest, throws the stick the furthest, or that crazy hammer thing that who came up with that, but that's another story. So that, it's very clear who wins, right? Very clear. Most goals, most whatever. But then there's those sports that you're like, how do you know? 
like diving, all right? Diving. What's the difference between a 6.5 and an 8.5? Who knows? I mean, really, who really knows? You, you think you know because you're like, well, the splash was small. And so you don't know what you're talking about. Unless you were a diver, you got no clue. The gymnastics, okay, 15.49632473, right? Yeah. How do you know? Who decides that, right? Again, most of you have been watching enough. You're like, well, as long as they fly high and stick to landing, Bob, we're good to go. I, yeah. But there's more to it than flying high and sticking the landing, right? How do you know what to look for? How does the person know what to look for on that ribbon thing? <laughs> oh, did you see the ribbon fly? That was great, Bob. Did you see how high she threw the hula hoop? How did that make it in the Olympics, y'all? How is baseball not in the Olympics? Ribbon swinging is in the Olympics. How is trampolining not just a backyard activity? It's in the Olympics. I don't know. How do you judge that? I don't know. But there are people that judge it. And these people know what to look for. Because it's bigger than what kind of splash. It's bigger than fly high and stick the landing. They're looking for specific things. They've been trained, they've been equipped to spot with the average guy who thinks he knows what he's talking about, but really doesn't, unless it's a belly flop. You got no clue. But they do, because they've been trained. They can see beyond what the average guy sees. And that's a little bit behind the heart of the text today, of what we're gonna talk about. We're jumping back in to the first letter to the Thessalonians by the Apostle Paul. We just cracked the door on it last week. So if you're kind of, again, you're, not, you're here for the first time, you can go back and listen to the intro. Most of us hopefully did our homework and we read through the book every day for six days. It took you about 10 minutes. If you didn't do it, your homework for this week, everyone do the same thing, All right? Because we want to just get this book in our mind. So keep reading through it. But what we saw was this, Paul and his second missionary journey. About 50 AD, he starts a church in this mega city called Thessalonica. It's a big kind of San Francisco, Houston, LA kind of city of the day. Very metro, it's got a big old port, a very important city. He plants a church, but before it can really be there for a long period of time, he gets driven out, his life is in danger. And so he has to leave these kind of brand new Christians to fend for themselves and it bothers them. And he's trying to get back and visit them and see how they are. But every time he tries to get back, Satan stops him, Satan stops him. And finally he gets to a city called Corinth and he sends Timothy, his young protege back to find out how they're doing and to make sure they haven't quit. And Timothy gets on a boat and he goes off and several months later, he finally shows up back and he says, Paul, they're doing great. They're not just doing great. They're, Everybody is following their example. They are now the model church. I know they're brand new, I've a bunch of novices, a bunch of rookies, but they are the model that everyone else is to imitate now. And so Paul just encouraged, writes this little letter back to them to encourage them, to remind them of some stuff, to clarify some confusion. But in doing so, he has given us a picture of a church to imitate, to model. And so what we've been asking is, okay, what do we, if we're imitating them as they imitate Jesus, what are we looking for? What do we want to imitate? What do we want to be? And it's, it's y'all, it's bigger than just stick the landing. It, it's, it's more deep than just a oh, big splash, little splash. And so what we want to kind of do today is train us to see, to look for, and to be like this church. And, and, and there's some things that are a little bit deeper than just a simplistic, well, they got comfy chairs at that church. That's a good church. Oh, they got great kids ministry. Oh, they got good music. 
That's just a, that's just a splash. But there's, there's more subtle, there's more under the surface that we want to see and we want to be as we imitate so that we become, I know it's a new word for us, it's not in the dictionary, but it's in Bill's dictionary, imitatable. Imitable just doesn't catch it. Imitatable. That we are a church of people that are imitatable. All right? So we're going to look at chapter one, really the, end, the, the rest of the chapter today, and it's going to highlight four things to us. Four things we want to be looking for, four things we want to be following, four things we want to be doing. Um, and it's deeper than just a splash, right? So let me read the text. We'll come back and highlight some things about it, all right? Chapter one, verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what type of men we prove to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and know how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he starts off and he's thankful. He says, we give thanks to God. And and notice the we, because it's a family deal. It's not just him. It's we, Paul, Silas, uh, Timothy. We as a family give thanks to God. And then notice the adverbs and the adjectives, right? Always we give thanks. For all of you, we give thanks. Constantly we give thanks in our prayers. It's this, he opens up with this, this golden corral buffet of thankfulness, right? Right off the bat, for folks that he loves. And these are his people. He, can, he, can, he hasn't seen them in a while, but he pictures their faces. He can see them just like, I see y'all. I see the sleepers. I see the smilers. I see the grumpies. You don't think I see, I see. I'm like Santa Claus, right? I'm always watching. But he, he can picture them. And I, I see them. I know them. I remember Jim Bob. I remember these people. And he loves them. And he says, I am thankful for you, all of you, even the sleepers. I'm thankful for you. Right? And, and, and we breeze through this because we're like, oh, it's the intro. But we shouldn't breeze through it because in this, we see the first thing that, though it's a little bit under the radar, it's not as evident as the big splash or the little splash. It is one of the marks of an imitatable people that they are continuously thankful. Say that with me, that they are continuously thankful. That's just for the sleepers. Make sure they're awake. All right. And I know some of you are thinking, well, it's not really the people that are thankful. It's Paul that are thankful, right? So you're kind of, you're kind of eisegesizing the text there, Bill. Yeah, I am. But here's the thing. These people are imitating Paul, who is imitating the Lord Jesus. And when you jump to chapter five, he is going to command them to be thankful in all circumstances. Why? Because an imitatable people are a thankful people, continuously thankful. And, he's, and he says, we're not, we're not talking about some cheese ball, fake, 
Hallmark card, rose-colored glasses, mind over matter, not refusal to accept that the life gets hard and there's really, tr- there's really struggles. I'm not talking about that. He is not ignorant to the trouble, all right? He has tried time and time again to get back to them. And every time, how frustrating, Satan stops him. How frustrating is that? And for them, they got people in jail. They got people dead. They got people get kicked out of their houses. They got struggles. He's not like, happy, happy, happy. Satan doesn't like me. Yay, yay, yay. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about in the middle of that, still being able to somehow be thankful. And the question is this, how can I be that? Because let's be honest, when things stink, and for some of you right now, it's a train wreck. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your bank account is in the negative, right? You, you feel like everything is broken and you're like, how do you expect me to be thankful, right? I wanna ask that question because there's times I don't feel that way. And Paul gives us the solution, right? He says, we give thanks constantly, mentioning my prayers, here's the key word, remembering. Remembering. And, and the idea behind remembering is not, oh, I remember my anniversary's next week. Oops. Oh, I remember I was supposed to take the kids to soccer practice. Oops. It's not, it's not that kind of remember. It is an active remembering. It is intentional. It is choosing to remember. Right? It's calling to mind is the action, purposely. Let me, let me show you how this works, okay? Because we can all do this. You can all do this. It's the key to thankfulness. I want you to think right now. Ready? Put your thinking caps on. I want you to think about eighth grade. Now, if you're not in eighth grade yet, think about kindergarten. All right? But the rest of you think eighth grade. All right? Where did you live? Who was your teacher? How did you roll your pants up? Were you bell-bottom boy? Were you 80s cuff guy? Right? Were you 90s, 2000s skinny jeans guy? Who were your friends? Right? What, what, what kind of music? Were you, you thinking you're hipster? You had your foam earphones listening to The Cure? Thinking, I'm cool, I'm hip, I'm, I'm a. Or maybe you were, maybe you're using your eight track to listen to the Bee Gees. Or maybe you're older and you're listening to Johnny Mathis, some of you. Or, you know, maybe you're listening to somebody even before that. I don't know. Who sang in the 20s? Right? Some of you. <laughs> Right? What was going on for you in eighth grade? Who was your friend group? Right? Now, here's here's why this fits. Probably zero of you walked through those doors this morning and were thinking about your eighth grade English teacher, Mrs. McGillicuddy, and how she had a big old mole with hair hanging out of it on her face or something like that, right? You weren't thinking about that until what? Until I told you to remember eighth grade. And then when I told you to remember eighth grade, you're like, oh yeah, Mrs. McGillicuddy, she smelled like cheese or something, right? You were able to call it to mind. And that's all we're talking about doing is calling to mind what God has done. And all of us can do that. You can do that. I can do that, right? That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 77. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. It is purposeful. It is intent. That's what Paul is doing, right? And if you can call to mind eighth grade, y'all, and eighth grade would not a good time for some of y'all, right? 
If you can remember eighth grade, you can ponder the deeds of the Lord. And you can be thankful, even in the midst of junk. Even in the midst of junk. So Paul says this, I'm thankful. How? I remember before our God and Father, three things, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. It's a triad you see all through scripture, faith, hope, and love, right? So I remember your work of faith, that, your, that your, your faith responded in working and serving. I remember your labor of love, how because of your love, you endured. It was hard. It was toil. But you, because love endured. I remember when I, was, when I was about to get married, I worked three jobs the summer before I was getting married, and I didn't like any of them. I was working like 20 hours a day because I was getting married in a few months, and it was a labor of love. And I hated all the jobs, but I loved my wife or my bride. And so I did it. That's what he's talking about. I, I know it's hard, but there's love there. And I know there, there's, there's this difficulty, but there's steadfastness because you have hope that what? Jesus is going to come back one day and he's going to get to this in chapter four and five. So I'll save it for there. But he's thinking not of the fact that there's people that are dead. He's not thinking of the fact that people are in jail. He's not thinking of the fact that, that I can't get to you and Satan is stopping me. He is thinking about what God has done. And he says, I'm, I'm thankful, right? I'm thankful. And we can do that. We can all do that because look, y'all, we have so much to be thankful for. I mean, in America, you have so much to be thankful for. And part of our problem as Americans is we always have, we have a spiritual gift of identifying what is wrong in the world. That is your spiritual gift. If that is your spiritual gift, stop watching Fox News, all right? Because that's all some of you think about. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? So you see your kids, and all you can think about is they got a C plus. They got a C plus in math. Can't believe it, man. Don't you know how important math is? How much math do you use, Dad? Don't use it, but it's important. <laughs> C plus. And you miss, you miss the fact, you're so mad about a C plus that you miss the fact that you have been blessed with kids because children are a blessing. But has he got a C plus? right? You're so, oh, your spouse has disappointed you. And they said they were going to be this and they're this and all oh, oh, they're not the person I married. And it's, it's been different. And you're so upset that they've disappointed you that you miss what the proverb says is the glory of overlooking an offense. It is the opportunity to model Jesus forgiveness and the gospel. But you're so upset about this that you miss the best thing, that you actually have a spouse and an opportunity to picture Jesus in his church on a daily basis. You're so mad because there's a leak in my sink. Can't believe the sink's leaking. I just installed that last year. My brand new marble countertops that have George's logo in it, but I can't believe it. I have a leak in my sink. And you miss the fact that you have clean water to drink. And it doesn't taste good, but it's safe. <laughs> and half the world doesn't have water. They got to walk a mile to a well. And you just go. <sighs> you don't, you don't, you're not, we're not thankful. My house is too small. Don't have enough bedrooms. My neighbor doesn't take care of his yard. Now my value is going down. You have a house, people. You know, Jesus didn't have a house. The son of man had no place to lay his head. There's people sitting in, in camps in Somalia and, and in all these places in Syria, but, but you're mad because your neighbor's grass gets too long and he doesn't trim his hedges? See what I'm talking about. 
This is America. Traffic is bad in Duran. At least you don't live in Atlanta. <laughs> right? And, and look, there is nothing that steals your joy, nothing that will sour relationships more, sour your attitude more than, than a thankless, gratefulless, ungrateful, grumpy, entitled, critical group of people. And there's nothing more un, unimitatable than that. And the church, honestly, y'all, is filled with them. It's filled with them. And if all you can do is identify what's wrong in the world, I promise you, you'll be a very miserable person. You just will. And you won't be unimitatable. Imitatable people are thankful. They call to mind. And the reality is this. If we really think about just big picture, and I know I'm not trying to make light of the fact that some of you are struggling because you want to be married and you're not, and you want to have children and you can't, and, and, and you want a new job and you haven't gotten it, and you wanted to go to, to this school and you got into this school. I'm not making light of that. But if we really step back and see the big picture, and if we really understand, if Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do, and I just happen to believe he is, if his promises are true, and, and Peter says they are, he says they're precious and they're magnificent. So if, if they are true, then Christians ought to be the most thankful and grateful and joyful people in all the world. Oughtn't we? Because you have riches in heaven and glory in heaven and joy in heaven that is unfathomable. And here's the reality. If you are a person who identifies as a Christian and you have no joy and you are ungrateful and you are always critical and you are very grumpy, I would like to probably suggest this morning that you have never been born again. Not because being thankful makes you a Christian, but being a Christian makes you thankful. So if you are never, I'm not talking about when you wake up and you haven't had your coffee yet and you kick the dog and yell at the kids. Everyone does that, okay? <laughs> Most of us anyway. I'm talking about when the spirit of coffee has filled you and the spirit of the Lord has filled you and you're awake. If you are a Christian, it, you are by nature, there should be joy. And if there's none ever, I would truly question whether or not you have been born again. Because if you have a savior who at his right hand is pleasure and joy forevermore, and there is none of that, then I don't know if you've met him, right? And I'm just trying to be honest with you. And an imitatable people is a thankful people. And so let me just give you a couple just quick applications on this and we'll move on. Number one is this. If your friend group, if the people you're always rolling with, if it's you and the ladies at the coffee shop every Tuesday morning at eight o'clock, and that is a just bash your husband, bash the government, bash your kids group, my suggestion to you is you need to leave that group because you will start being like them. And if you're a high schooler and you're just all, all your, your high school group that you roll with or your college is just bash the teacher, bash the parents, you know, complain about this. Oh, my dad bought me a Honda. He didn't buy me a Mercedes. Let me just tell you, you need to leave that friend group because that friend group is no good for you. And if you're going out with lunch with the guys after work, or I mean at work or going out for, and all they're doing is bashing their wives and bashing their boss, and they're you know, complaining about, you need to leave that group because you're gonna be like them. Don't hang out with grumpy, complaining people. You will become like them. Find a new group. That's one little application. Here's the second, is that we need to be better at vocalizing our thankfulness. 
like Paul. How encouraging for the Thessalonians who are in trouble, who have opposition to hear, I am thankful for you. There's people in this room that you have no clue, their life is a wreck. And when they see you, when your life is a wreck too, but yet there's a thankfulness and a gentleness and a joy there, it encourages them. If their life is like this and they're still able to be thankful, then maybe I can too, right? And so we need to be vocal about it instead of vocaling about how everything's wrong, vocal about right. We also need to be encouraging to one another because how good does it feel when you're busting your tail and you're doing something and you feel like no one notices and someone says, I appreciate you. How good does that feel? Does it feel good to be liked and been wanted and needed and thanked? Yes. Right? Yes, it does. And it even feels better when you're doing it when stuff is horrible, when, stuff is, when life is difficult. Nothing is even, stands out more than that even, I would say. When, you, when your boss is just on you and he's kind of a jerk and he's, he's like, man, he's demanding and nothing's ever good enough. Instead of complaining, how about this? If you went to him and said, hey, chief, I'm just thankful that I have a job. And so I appreciate you giving me all this input because it's just making me as a better employee. And so thank you. What would he do? He, he would be like, John smoking crack at lunch, everyone. <laughs> it would be radical, right? It would be so different, right? If, if, if you and your child has a bad game and they all do y'all, they're going to have a bad game, right? And you know what? I know you don't believe it, but you had a bad game too. A couple of them. In fact, if you had all good games, you wouldn't be working at Lowe's. You'd be in the pros, right? But because you had bad games like we all did. So instead of slamming our kid because they missed the shot, because they blew the game, because they did. How about on that ride home in the minivan when they already feel bad enough as it is, we say, hey, buddy, thanks for working so hard. I know it's hard being an athlete and being a student and you're doing a great job. And thanks for letting me be part of the deal and root for you. Right? And not being embarrassed that I yell at the ref a little bit. Speaking, not from experience, but for you guys, because <laughs> right? I don't do that stuff. But how, how different is that? How different, how, how different if you're, there's a, is a rocky point in your marriage and, and husbands, you, you, instead of identifying all the things that are wrong and what's not right and how she's not doing this, instead of saying, hey, honey, thanks. Thanks that I have clean socks and clean drawers because everyone would know it if I didn't. And, and, and thanks for, hun, honey, for paying, paying the light bill. Because it's hot out right now and it would be not good if the AC was out. I mean, the atmosphere of a thankful person. You know what that is? That's what Paul calls the aroma of Christ. And that's what we want. We want to vocalize it. We want to tell people. I want to tell you how thankful I am for so many of you. So many of you, first service, you were serving somewhere. You were busting it out, whether it was parking team or hospitality team or, or whatever. We have so many people, y'all, that it's a labor of love, that, that it's a work of faith. They sit in the booth for like 17 hours, have to listen to me talk. We've got people show up Saturdays and, they, and they, they practice five, six songs, two, three hours. We've got folks leading the little kids worship right now. They come in. There's so many people. CBC Kids alone. I don't know how many kids we got back there this week. Last week. When we launched, 
We had, we had over 250 kids from fifth grade to zero to fifth grade. Do you know how many people it takes to do that? That's like a school, right? And it's run volunteers, a couple paid staff and mostly volunteers. And there's people right now changing someone else's kid's nasty diaper. It's bad enough changing your own kid's diaper. And they're changing your kids. And there's kids getting loved on and poured Jesus into and sung and taught and, and, and shepherded. And I just want to thank so many of you for being part of that. That your generosity, some of you pray, you're doing CBC Neighbors during the week, you're reading with kids. Some of you went and picked up trash in the neighborhood last week. No one notices that. I want to thank you for so much. And you bear with us. Well, look, we make a lot of mistakes as a church, I promise you. All the time. I mean, there's train wrecks going on. We're like, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? And you guys keep coming. There's emails that don't get responded to and phone calls. You're like, what in the world? And, and I'm very grateful that you do. And so I want to thank you for all that you guys do to make this, this deal run just on a Sunday. You community group leaders who are at the hospital, who are making meals, who are letting us know what's going on, thanking you all. It's, it's a labor of love. It's part of our work of faith. And it's a huge encouragement to me because when we hear about all, all we ever hear about usually is what's going wrong. And so when we're worried about this, that, and the other, sometimes for me personally, I have to step back and some of our staff are half glass empty people and some are half glass full. And so I'm kind of just half glass, right? I'm in the middle. And so the half glass empty people that are always like, oh, let's fall apart. I have to go to them and say, hey, I know you think it is, but look at this. We got over 400 people in community groups. It's okay. And we got eight. I know we need 20 more people in CBC Kids, but we have hundred and something already. It's okay. It's just encouraging to hear of what's going on. So thank you guys. But we want to be, number one, a continuously thankful church. That's imitatable. Let's move, let's move on. Verse four. He says this, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. And let's just stop right there. He says, we know. And he uses a tense of the verb. It's, it's the Greek, te- it's called the perfect tense which we don't bring over in English very well. But in the the perfect tense speaks of something that occurs in the past, but that has future results. So what he's saying is, I knew, I still know, and I will know that this is true. He is expressing his confidence in something about them. He's expressing his confidence in their identity and who they are in Christ. That they are brothers, brothers from another mother, that they are loved by God, that he has chosen them. He is confident in their identity. And here's the second thing for us, that we want to be a people. And this is one of those subtle things. This is kind of real small that only the judges see and, and we wouldn't see. But it is a huge piece of a church that is imitatable, that we are confident in our identity. And their identity is what? That they are loved by God. That God is loves them, that that you are identified as those people who are God's loved ones. And some of you are like, yeah, 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 I know. And others of you are like, I do not feel that today. Just like I bet the Thessalonians, when their mom and dad kicked them out because they stopped worshiping Zeus and now they start worshiping Jesus, they don't feel loved. When they lose their spouse thrown in jail, they don't feel loved, right? And he is reminding them, no, no, no. You, do you have any clue, loved ones, what it means to be identified as God's loved ones, to be called his beloved, 
that his eyes are always on you, that you are never out of his mind, that he, that he knows you better than anyone else, that he, he says that he loves you with an everlasting love. He says that nothing can separate you from his love, that he even keeps your tears. And this is a lot of tears for some of y'all in a bottle. Not one escapes his notice. And it has nothing to do with your performance. It's not because you did a great quiet time this week. It's not because you shared the gospel with 37 people this week. It's not because you sang with all your heart. It's not because of anything you have done. Your identity is that he loves you despite you. He said he knows that you had the abortion. He knows how many times you've been married. He knows how many times you've lied and cheated. He knows your heart. He knows your propensity towards that addiction. He knows it all, and yet he still loves. That is your identity in him. It's a huge piece. And the problem for us as a culture is that so many are living for identity instead of out of their identity. They're, they're trying to project image. This is why so many people, all they do is they check their social media to see how many likes they got. You know, the selfie, but they make some weird lip thing. No one does that in real life, but they do it. Right? What is that? I don't know. Because we're trying to project something. And so we'll, we'll delete 73 pictures because my arm looked a little fat in the, in the picture and oh man, I didn't get to, and there was some weirdo in the back and we, we're projecting and we're taking pictures of everything we do. Oh, I'm having Frosted Flakes. Everyone who has Frosted Flakes needs to like this because you like Frosted Flakes and I don't. And all we do is we, we, we because we want to be like me. Want to be like me. Approve of me. It, it's, it's living for identity instead of living out Identity. We hope that, that someone would approve. We hope that someone would like. We hope that we, we are somebody. And look, you, what scripture teaches, if you're in Christ, you don't have to be someone. You already are. And in the, in the famous words of Aslan, the lion, and Prince Caspian, he says this, you come of the Lord Adam. And of the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. You have inherent value. You are made in the image of God. Beyond that, he has loved you with an everlasting love. And there's nothing more attractive and imitatable than a group of people that aren't showing up trying to impress and lie and pretend and fake everyone else out. Right? You came in here with your family today, everyone looked perfect and everyone, you know, look, nobody is perfect. And that little family over there, you're like, oh, they got it all together. I promise you, someone was fighting this morning in the car, in the minivan about a seatbelt, or couldn't find a shoe, or their hair was out of place. There's nobody that showed up perfect this morning. Doesn't matter how you looked. You're not fooling anybody. And, you don't, and the beauty of understanding your identity is you don't have to. You don't have to impress. You don't have to hide. You don't have to earn, right? You can be how God has created you to be. It says, you are loved by God. How do you know you're loved by God? Notice the next phrase. Because he has chosen you. He's chosen you. And I know some of you, you're all of a sudden getting a little tick in you. You know, you're like, see, there's the election. There's chosen word. The C word. Election. Time to fight. 
you know, fight about the doctrine of election and Calvinism and all these things. And, and, and that, you have that pushback because you're an American. And Americans have the right to choose. But Paul says, God chose you. I know what we want to do, and you have whole theologies that developed around this, and you can read books, and you've got five points of this, and we've got to figure out, well, when God says that, we have to figure out the why he says, what is his choice based on, and how does he choose, and why does he choose? You know what? Paul doesn't say. He just says, God chose you. Though he didn't say it, I ain't going to say it. But here's the idea, and if you have a problem with Paul and election, you can argue with him in heaven for all eternity, and you guys can fight about it, because I can tell you this. The doctrine of election is never meant to be something that is debated about. It is always meant to be something that is a comfort and encouragement, is that God chose you. He wanted you. And I know that was necessary for me. God had to choose me because he knew that I would never choose him. And he had to love me first because he knew that I would never love him. You're like, well, no, that's not true. I chose God. Very American of you. Very American. Considering Romans 3 says, there's no one who seeks God. No, not one. But since you're the one, no, not one, but Jim. It's, it's meant to be an encouragement. How good does it feel to be wanted? How good does it feel to be chosen? It's something that's in our heart. All of us want that. We want to be liked. That's why some of you ladies will run into the arms of a knucklehead and do silly things. Why? Because he loves you and he wants you. And of course, he, he cares about me. Because there's something in our hearts. And we'll run to a friend group and a group that we know that's not a good influence. But they're the only ones that care about me. They're the only ones that accept me. Because there's a desire to be wanted and liked. And let me tell you, beloved, you are loved. You are chosen. It's supposed to be an encouragement to you. Not to be feared. Do, do, remember, remember, go back to elementary school, even before eighth grade. Remember recess? Recess for some of you was a nightmare, I know. Because you went on the playground and it was time to pick teams for kickball. And you, you, didn't even, you knew that you were going to be the last one picked, so you didn't play. You're like, oh, I don't like kickball, but you love kickball, but you just didn't want to get into kickball because you knew you were last. I was kind of get picked in the middle of the pack, guys, so I'd, I'd go play. But I know this. Every day going out to recess, it was my heart's desire and my hope and my dreams that I would get picked by Ted Starius. Because Teddy Starius always won. And he was the best. And I didn't care if Teddy Starius put me in right field or made me the bat boy. As long as he picked me, I knew I would win. I knew I was important. I knew I was desired. Really, that... That is the doctrine of election, except for you weren't picked in the middle and you weren't picked last. That God chose you first before the foundation of the world. He loved you. He pursued you. He put you on the winning team. And it's meant to give you strength. It's meant to give you encouragement. And there are oftentimes when people debate this, the opposite is true. There's an arrogance and there is a, a pride and there's a they're a, a conflict-drivenness. It's usually a 21-year-old man, boy, who's been in a Bible study with a 23-year-old who's telling him all these things. And now he has, understands the sovereignty of God because he's 21 and he's been in a Bible study. 
Look, is God sovereign? Yes. Does man have to respond? Yes. How does that work? I have no clue. But I know this, the doctrine of election is meant to be humbling and comforting that God, even though he knew I was a moron, wanted me. How good is that? It's part of my identity. I don't have to show up and perform. I don't have to show up and earn. I can just show up and I can be courageous and encouraged because God cares about me. He says, God loved you. God chose you. How does he know? Real quick, let me just cover this because it's in the text and I don't want to be unfair to the text. We'll come back to it in a couple of weeks. He says, because when we came to you, not only in word, but we came in power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He said, when we showed up, it was a God thing, y'all. We came, we proclaimed Christ. You knew it. It was clear. There was no doubt. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about Paul. There's different types of preachers. There's different types of personalities. And, and God uses all of them. But here's what God wants. He wants his word proclaimed. He wants his word heralded. That's what he wants. He's not, well, you know, we don't know, God, whatever. You know, he wants his name proclaimed. And when Paul came into Thessalonica, he says, that's what we did. And here's what's cool. You got this, um, here's a picture of, of modern day Thessalonica. This mountain right here, for those who know their little geography, that's Mount Olympus. Like the real one, not the one from Hercules, the movie, or the Clash of the Titans, or whatever. That is, that is right there in Thessalonica. And so when Paul is showing up in Thessalonica preaching, he's looking at this mountain. These people are thinking, you know, that's where Zeus lives. That, that's where Hermes lives. That's where Apollo lives. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. Those, not really, those aren't really gods. There's no one up on that mountain except maybe the Coca-Cola uh, uh, bears. They live up there, right? The polar bears. That's the only thing on that mountain. But there is a God... His name is Jesus, and he created that mountain, and he died on a cross for your sins. And they come with power and authority and conviction, and these people believe. They believe. They, they bring the message. That is what our job is. And it is not a message that needs to be whispered. It's not him and Hall. It's a message that is to be proclaimed. If he is a king, then his message needs to be heralded. So it's not, well, unite when you believe in Jesus. It's, hear ye, hear ye, thus says the king. That's the message. That's what Paul did. And he says, that's how we know this was the real deal. That's because it was change, because it was power, because it was the Holy Spirit. And now you are different people, right? And he's confident. So two things so far. First one, they're both C's. I've made them all C's this morning, this morning for you. Use my thesaurus this week, my Microsoft thesaurus, so you guys can remember. But I want, I want us to remember this. First one, we are what? Continuously thankful. See, this is for the sleepers in the room. Number two, we are confident in our identity. Number three, verse six, and you became imitators of us. The Greek word is mimetai. We get our English word mimic from it. You followed us as we followed the Lord. And you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Right, that's Northern and Southern Greece. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He's saying, you guys have gone viral, is what he's saying. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. And real quick, what he's saying here, he's like, everyone knows about y'all. I don't know how, but everyone knows. We show up at a town, they're talking about this church in Thessalonica. Y'all are viral. Everyone knows about you. And, and here's the third C. 
An imitatable church is a contagious church. Contagious in our lives. And everybody who has kids knows exactly what contagious means. Because when your kid gets a cold, you lock him in the closet and, and pray that nobody else gets it. Because if, if, if you got more than one kid, I'm telling you, it moves through the family. Even the cat and the dog get it. It's awful, right? Because you can't hide it. You're sneezing on the remote and on everything else. And we all get sick. On the positive side is this. This church, people are catching them. They're catching them. Their faith, their hope, their love. That people are like, did you hear about that church in Tesla? like what they're doing? Anyway, it's amazing. And they want to be just like them. And they're the example. They're the, they're the following, the mimicking. They're, they're the tupas is the word there. They're a type of what they're supposed to be. There's a lot of Christians that are not contagious. There's a lot of churches. There is nothing being caught. In fact, they're another C word. I'm not allowed to say it because so many parents told your kids it's bad. It starts with C, rhymes with happy. It's a fish. Right? We don't want to be that. And the reason they are crummy is what? Because they're, I got C's all day long. They're consumeristic. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about if you don't make me happy, I'm going to go down the street to the next church. And if they don't make me happy, I'm going to go. And if they don't listen to me, and it's not about me, 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 me. Consumer, that's not contagious. Compromising, they compromise. They, they, they go out and they're down on River Street getting blitzed. Friday night, they're living like everyone else. They're talking like everyone else. They're, they're sleeping with their girlfriend like everyone else. There's no difference between them and the world. They're compromising lukewarm Christians. Not contagious. They're, they're commune Christians. They just want to hide from everybody. If they're not just like me, if they don't do what I do, they don't look like I look, I'm not going to reach out to them. I'm not going to love on them. They smell like smoke when they come in. They got tattoos. They got this. They got that. That's not good. We're not going to like them. We want to be just me and God and, and our three friends. That, that's not contagious. Nor is it Christian. They're, they're callous. So I'll say, hey, go do homework. Go read your Bible just 10 minutes a day. I ain't doing that. Really? You won't spend 10 minutes reading the Bible. We call people to repentance and this sin and stop doing this and go in there. And I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. They don't repent from sin. They never change. It's never about, it's never about, it's never their fault. It's never this. It's callousness. Critical. Again, come back to Critical. The problem with criticism, and we all need it, construction, I'm, I'm nobody's above it. But the problem is, again, some of you think that your spiritual gift is criticism, and, it, and the more criticism you offer, the more you criticize. Isn't that how it works? It's never like, oh, I criticize, so I become less critical. Critical people just become more critical. And if you ask yourself the question, critical person, is the world getting any better because of your criticism? The answer is no, it's not. This is not. And what kind of, what, what, brings, what brings churches together more? What brings families together more? What makes them tighter, criticism or thankfulness? You, you ask yourself that question this week. But the point is, these things are not imitatable. Faith, hope, and love, thankfulness, imitatable. And like the writer to Hebrews, look, I'm convinced of better things for us. I'm convinced. But you gotta ask yourself, am I contagious? Are you catchable? If everyone in this church prayed like you prayed, what would it look like, good or bad? If everyone in this church gave like you gave, cared about your neighbor like you care, shared the gospel as much as you shared, read their Bible, studied, spent time with God like you did, if everyone in this church sang like you, would it, sang like the Brook, would it sound like the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir or would it sound like 
you know, whispers. Are you contagious? Are you worth catching is the question. And if not, then what's the why? Because that's, that's the idea, right? Because we're all contagious in one way or other. Let's be contagious because we're thankful and confident in our identity, right? Right. Number one was what? First thing, continuously. Second thing, we are confident. Third thing, we are contagious in our lives. And the last thing is real quick. I needed, this is a hard one for my thesaurus, y'all, but I got it. We're conspicuous with our faith. I said visible. Thank the Lord. Webster's thesaurus, Roger's thesaurus said conspicuous. I'm like, yes, I got to see. But there's conspicuousness seen. It's visible. Again, verse, verse nine, he says, they're reporting to us the kind of reception. People are talking about your faith. It is visible. Your faith is visible. It's your work of faith. And I know that seems like an oxymoron. How can faith be visible? Because your faith will always respond if it's real with work. Always. Read the book of James. You have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. He says, everyone can see it. You are conspicuous. There is no such thing as as a secret service, secret agent Christian. In the New Testament, there is no, oh, double O Fowler going under the radar. Yeah, that doesn't exist. The Christian is to be conspicuous and not because he is a weirdo. We're not talking about weirdo Christian. Okay, you're conspicuous because your faith. Jesus was not weird. In fact, he was so normal, no one believed that he was a Messiah, but he was conspicuous. We're not talking about being conspicuous because you got a big old King James Bible on your desk, open to Jeremiah something. You got sticky notes on your computer, or you wear a shirt that says, you think it's hot here, right? (laughs) That's not what we're talking about. What was it that was conspicuous about these guys? He tells us, they turned from God to God from idols. They served the living God, the true God, Jesus, who rose from the dead. That was it. They, were, they stopped worshiping Zeus and they started worshiping Jesus. Jesus. And you go, well, I don't worship idols. You may not worship Zeus, but maybe you worship power. Maybe you worship authority. I don't worship Aphrodite or Eros, the Greek god of love, but maybe you worship relationships with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. I don't, I don't worship Hermes, but maybe I worship sports or work or getting that promotion. I don't worship Bacchus, but I go out and party or I have some other functional savior that I'm hiding from everybody, prescription drugs, whatever, whatever. See, we may not bow down to some totem pole, but we have the same gods. And the idea is that now this is a group of people that were living for Zeus. Now they're living for Jesus. And it was evident. There was life Change. They are stopping worshiping false dead gods and they are worshiping, notice the words, the living and true God. And they are waiting for Jesus to come back. They believe Jesus was coming back anytime. Do you believe that? I know it's been 2,000 years and it's almost like humorous on a bumper sticker. In case of rapture, a car will be unmanned, right? And that's all, it's become a laughing point. No, it is not a laughing point, loved ones. The Lord Jesus, one day, it might be tomorrow, it could be in another thousand years. I got no clue. But I will tell you this, as as sure as he rose from the dead, 
One day the skies will crack. There will be a shout, there will be a trumpet, and the Lord Jesus will return and he will pour out wrath on the earth, but not on his church, right? He, he will come for his church. And, and living in light of the fact that Jesus will come back at any point has always driven the church to holiness and godliness. Peter says, if such things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? It always res- you always respond in holy conduct because if we know Christ is coming, hey, we're gonna get ready. So you're gonna date differently, singles. You're not gonna be sleeping at your girlfriend's house and sleeping with her because you know Jesus is coming back. Right? You're not going to work lazy, slacker, leave 15 minutes early, stealing from your, because you know Jesus is coming back. You're not going to raise your kids just to make you look good and make a lot of money. You're going to raise them to be arrows in the hands of, of a God who is a warrior and reach people for Jesus. It, it, it's going to change everything because when the king says, I want you to turn, you're going in this direction, I want you to turn, you're going to turn. He says, I don't want you, you shouldn't be living with your girlfriend. Okay, boop. Jesus King says not to do that. I'm going to go this way. And, and I, I, you're, you're not supposed to treat your spouse, your parents, your, your employees in this way because they're made in God's image. Okay, God, the King says to do that. And, and I know you want to hurt this person because they hurt you, but you're not supposed to revile and return. You're supposed to, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. Okay, the King says that. That's what knowing Jesus comes back does. It is conspicuous. It is visible. It is who God's called us to be, right? That is imitatable. And it's so encouraging that this is a group of novice Christians that are doing it, right? Novice Christians. Four things. I know I'm going over, so we're, we're gonna, I'm going to wrap it up here. Four C's, right? This is not just the, the small splash. It's not just the, the stick, the landing. These are the things that are under the radar, but it makes all the difference. What's the first thing? We are continuously. We are confident in our. We are contagious in our lives. And the last thing is we are conspicuous. Our faith is conspicuous. That's, our, that's what we're going to imitate. I'll, I'll ask Drew, you guys, worship team, you guys come back up. We're going to worship. And here's what I would say. Whatever the spirit of Christ in you is leading you to do, do it. If you have an idol that needs to be turned from, turn from it. If you need to embrace your identity in Jesus and who you are and who he's made and you're feeling, oh, God doesn't, this is the time. If you are an ungrateful, grumpy Christian, that's an oxymoron in itself, but if that's you, then maybe this is a time to remember what Christ has done. Whatever the Spirit of God in you, and you know where you're at, whatever He's moving you to do, this is your time to respond as a church. This is the we portion where we do it together. So why don't you stand, I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Father, just use... Just this few songs we'll sing to reflect on your goodness, on your truth. I pray for your church. We are not perfect, but we are loved and we are chosen. And so I ask for you just to encourage your people with that truth. I pray that we would be a church that's becoming more and more like Christ and thus more and more imitatable. Whatever needs to be done in our hearts this morning, Lord, just do that. Uh, We give you freedom because you have bought us with a price. It's in your name we pray.